0: Good morning. This is Danny Haifong for episode one of Cold War Brew. How is everyone doing? I'll let the room fill up. I am going to first just give a little bit of an introduction of what this show is and a little bit of a background of me in case you are just encountering my work for the first time, and then we'll get to the topic at hand. We will get into how this podcast relates to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, what I intend to focus on, and my comments about this ongoing development, which is so critical to the geopolitical sphere and to humanity at large. So I intend this podcast to be essentially about all of the various components and aspects of the new Cold War, the history of the Cold War, and I come from the issue of the Cold War, from this topic, from a socialist perspective, from an anti-imperialist perspective. For those who have been following my work for years, I have written for Black Agenda Report, still do contribute to them. I have my own substack at Chronicles of chroniclesofhaifong.substack.com. I run the YouTube channel, The Left Lens, and I've written hundreds of articles for Black Agenda Report in various outlets. On this very subject, as well as U.S. foreign policy, imperialism, and its economic, political, social, and various uh, relationships to our lives and the roots. I really do try to get at the roots of this problem and understand and focus on the resistance to imperialism that we see worldwide. So I have listeners coming in filling up the room. Thanks so much for coming today. It is 11.32 a.m. on this Sunday. I plan on having this podcast occur each Sunday at about this time. And of course, I will send out updates and uh, any sort of news that you need to know if there are any changes to the schedule. But in any event, let's get started. So as you all know, Russia and Ukraine are mired in a conflict and it has taken the world by storm. It is receiving nonstop coverage from mainstream media, independent media. It is a monumental moment in, in a crisis that is unprecedented in many ways. And one of the ways that it's unprecedented is that it occurs in this new Cold War moment, this building new Cold War that is led by the United States, that is led by NATO countries and the West. And the new Cold War targets Russia and China in particular. And now this is the first major military conflict out of this new Cold War that comes from the side of the targeted. And so this may not be a very popular perspective, but since Russia is one of the primary targets of the U.S.-led new Cold War, it is, in fact, the targeted country that responded to so many provocations. And these provocations are being wholly ignored by the mainstream media by the U.S. political class, by the European and Western establishment. They don't want to talk about the context. They don't want to talk about the history. And they don't especially want to talk about NATO expansion and their role in creating the Ukraine crisis and the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But in any event, we need to define some terms. So the new Cold War sprouted out of the old Cold War, the first Cold War, with period, right, history is often divided. As the Cold War occurring during the 20th century and some date it back to the Russian Revolution of 1917 because Russia was invaded directly after the Russian Revolution of 1917 by several Western countries and the United States, placing tens of thousands of troops to support the white army opposition in order to try to overthrow the Red Army, overthrow the Bolsheviks from power. It failed Disastrously, and this was occurring during uh, the First World War as well. So, some date back the First Cold War to that moment where, for the first time in history, a country, especially a country as big as Russia, embarked on a socialist path and created a backlash from capitalist and imperialist powers seeking to weaken it. And overthrow it. But most people actually date the Cold War back to the mid-20th century when McCarthyism was at fever pitch in the United States and the West as well. Where after China's revolution in 1949, after the United States became a global superpower, there was an attempt by the political establishment in the United States and across the Western imperial powers to cement their hegemony, and this included a heavy-handed suppression of internal dissent, whether that was kicking socialists, communists, even anarchists out of the labor movement, whether that was through an unprecedented assault on media, journalism, as well as even cultural workers and actors. And this found its highest expression in HUAC, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, where prominent people like Paul Robeson, prominent revolutionaries and radicals were red-baited and punished by the U.S. government for supposedly being associated with communists and the Communist Party. And so a lot of people look back at the Cold War as that moment and actually see the end of the Cold War as occurring when the Soviet Union was dismembered and dismantled in 1991. And so that's kind of how people see this era of the cold war taking shape in history and view it as usually generally the mainstream narrative is it's, it was a moment of conflict between two rising powers at that moment. And, Generally, it's not looked at as I look at it. So this is my definition of the Cold War was the first Cold War was about a struggle between two systems. And it was actually primarily a response to the rise of socialism worldwide. And we can't understand, I don't believe we can understand the Cold War in any other context than that. Given all of the actions, all of the policies, all of the developments that occurred over the course of the Soviet Union's history, we can just look at the U.S.'s invasion of Vietnam being primarily and essentially and totally about the suppression and repression of the socialist revolution that was occurring there. In the quote unquote containment of communism in Asia to get a somewhat of a look at what the real roots of the Cold War, the first Cold War, were. And so there was this period, right, when the US became the sole hegemon and there was no more Soviet Union, there was no more socialist bloc, so to speak, post 1991. And It was declared by people like Francis Fukuyama, right, that there was an end of history that had occurred. That Capitalism was going to be hegemonic for the rest of human history, that there was no alternative. Tina, there is no alternative, became a popular formulation among economists, among scholars, among Western elites in general. And then the global war on terror happened, and it created... Just this intense contradiction between the U.S.'s and the West's desire to eliminate any alternative to its rule, to go to the greatest lengths to fuel the military-industrial complex, while at the same time incurring such a significant backlash, both domestically and abroad, which caused intense instability. And we can really date this back to the intervention in Yugoslavia which only cemented the deplorable conditions that exist in Eastern Europe to this day. But we can really see how the post-Cold War era, so-called, caused such devastation across the Arab and Muslim world through U.S. wars, U.S.-NATO wars, and how that actually weakened the U.S.'s hegemony. In a lot of ways, it began to really cut into the legitimacy of this end of history narrative because more and more people were seeing the U.S. and its allies as simply aggressors around the world. And then you had the fact that you had Russia and China actually recovering, Russia in particular, recovering from the post-Soviet collapse. And then China, right? Quiet in the background, no one really paying attention to it because U.S.-China relations in seventy-two up until the global war on terror had been relatively strong and stable. But China's economic growth was occurring. It was not becoming embattled in wars. And it was becoming more and more of a player on the world stage. And so the United States around 2012, really 2011-ish, under the Obama administration began a shift in foreign policy because the quagmires, the crises in the Arab and Muslim world created by the United States, culminating in the US-NATO disaster and destruction of Libya, they were becoming fetters, really, on this global imperialist and capitalist order that the United States was in the lead of. There needed to be a shift in priorities, and strategists from the Rand, in the RAND Corporation and other institutions that, and think tanks that write foreign policy, they began to see what was going on around the world, that the U.S. was actually, because of the 2007-2008 crisis, because of how much it spends on the military, because of all of the contradictions of the system, it was actually contracting economically, stagnating economically, and the rising powers to the East, Russia and China, were not having these problems. And so the United States and its NATO allies, they saw the next stage in phase of this foreign policy agenda to be the containment of Russia and China. And so this took many forms. It took form uh, form in the pivot to Asia announced by the Obama administration about uh, during the latter half of his first term. And we saw a massive escalation in the militarization of the Asia Pacific over this time to the point where not only are there 400 military bases, U.S. military bases, surrounding China, but we also have at least 60% of U.S. naval assets and around 50% of the total military capacity of the United States stationed in this region. We also saw it in the NATO encirclement of Russia, which plays a huge role in the current Ukraine-Russia conflict. The United States in NATO after 1991, despite promises to Mikhail Gorbachev, expanded NATO 14 times, emitting 14 more countries, including several countries such as Poland, such as uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, these countries. Through the emission of these countries, the United States uh, really stationed, and NATO stationed their military hardware and, and continued to hold massive military exercises right along Russia's border. Just an example of this is a Trident Juncture military exercise held by NATO, where in 2018, Norway was the location of this massive exercise. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of troops from NATO. We're talking about incredible mobilization of weapons of mass destruction. And Norway had to tell Russia this was going to happen because of how much of a security threat it really is. And Russia, being up until this point, Really patient with this development, said, "Okay, you told us you said nothing's going to happen. You gave us assurances, and so go ahead with your exercise." I mean that that kind of speaks to this current moment. So that that's a little bit about an introduction to this new Cold War uh, that the United States is currently engaging from the military side. But there's so many other aspects to it that we will get into. We will get into Russia Gate. Right. We will get in to the propaganda war against Russia and China, of course, is, which is at fever pitch where I reside in the United States and all across the Western world. We will talk about the diplomatic and economic aspects of the new Cold War, economic warfare in the form of sanctions, di- diplomatic attempts. Right. If we can call it diplomacy, really aggressive attempts to isolate Russia and China diplomatically through alliances, and through uh, attempts to sanction not just the economies of these countries, but also the officials of these countries uh, to to sanction their ability to travel, to take part in political affairs with the United States and with uh, European powers. Uh, This is really an extensive issue. It really spans the entire spectrum of what politics really is, what class struggle really is all about. So during this COVID-19 moment, of course, the new Cold War on China has ramped up intensely. And we saw that in the propaganda war spearheaded by Trump and the Democrats, the bipartisan consensus on this around human rights violations, alleged human rights violations in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. We saw another iteration in the U.S. to support for color revolutions in Hong Kong in particular, sort of using the Ukraine model from 2014, using the Ukraine model from 2004, the Belarus uh, model, which really took from the Hong Kong model in 2020, right? So color revolutions are also a big part. This new Cold War against Russia and China in China for a while, up until this intervention, was really the target of this new Cold War. Biden had just announced this Indo-Pacific strategy that built upon Trump's national security strategy of great power competition, guaranteeing a new uh, base in Guam, a new military base in Guam, an expansion of the militarization of the entire Asia Pacific, and of course, the strengthening of military alliances and political alliances like the Quad, India, Japan, uh, the United States, and I believe Australia. Um, So that alliance will be strengthened through this strategy and this is; These are just parts of what this new Cold War has been about. And of course, COVID has been a huge talking point, right? So it's been a huge issue from blaming China for COVID-19, from uh, attempting to politicize the World Health Organization, which has always been politicized, but attempting to politicize it toward the... COVID-19 pandemic and this war on China, this new Cold War on China, right? We can really hit on all of these issues, and we will in this podcast, anti-Asian racism, which has been stoked over the past few years because the media posts a negative story about China on the daily, right? The human rights, humanitarian interventionist propaganda, and just... all of these baseless accusations of China stealing intellectual property and just anything that you can think of as China being quote unquote bad. And so Russia has also faced very similar attacks in just different, in a different form because Russia's situation is different, right? Uh, Russia is not the economic power that China is, but Russia does stand For very similar things around the world, especially in terms of this multipolar order that China and Russia are spearheading, this attempt to build a world order that is not just dominated by one country, but that includes the voices, the interests of multiple countries, and ideally all countries around the world, right? To have everyone have some say in how this globe how the world is managed and how difficult problems like military conflict like climate change like economic inequality these difficult problems that really need global cooperation uh, a multipolar order is about how to resolve those in a more diplomatic cooperative manner that is consistent with the un charter and so you have developments like the, friend, the groups of friends uh, for the UN char- in defense of the UN Charter that has developed over the years in response to this developing multipolar world. And so in many ways, this new Cold War is a response to all of this. It's a response to two rising powers, Russia and China, which are different in character, but had very deep common interests. And given that they are both Attacked, right? They are both being attacked in this new cold war. It only makes sense that these two countries would move closer together. However, the United States knows this very well. This is not the only reason that these two countries are coming, getting closer together. It's also because they share a lot of regional, cultural, economic uh, partnerships that make sense for them. And they do share a political alignment, especially on global affairs, especially in how they manage and approach global affairs. And so this Ukraine-Russia conflict has thrown a lot of people into a mode, a state of hysteria. It has really touched upon all of these aspects of the new Cold War from the economic war that the United States and NATO are currently waging on Russia to this ongoing political and, and, and color revolution, a proxy war that the United States and NATO continue to fuel in Ukraine, which lies at the root of Russia's intervention, right? The coup in 2014, and the continued militarization, sending of weapons and aid. The National Endowment for Democracy continue to support civil society groups, so-called civil society groups, which really give literal educational and cultural edu- institutions to groups like C14 and the Azov Battalion, so they can, uh, so they can have support, logistical support, public relations support. I mean, this goes really deep this conflict in terms of how this new cold war is managed and so one of the reasons why the big reason why people are having a hard time with this conflict is because the the response right has come from russia russia has taken an offensive posture and china right And Russia, up until this point, up until the intervention last month, were doing their best to ultimately chart their own courses of development, respond in kind when needed, keep things about diplomacy, make statements, and just get on with their business, right, of economic development, of right? Ramping up their defense systems in case of an offensive threat from the US, from NATO countries, from uh, any one of these areas of the new Cold War, right? That, that was kind of the posture. It was, let's, let's get down to business. Let's secure our positions. Let's continue to promote this multipolar world. Let's strengthen our partnership. But it was clear in the over the last year, over the last six months, and then, of course, over the last few months where intelligence was saying, okay, Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade, and we saw the United States pumping weapons, pumping money, pumping aid into Ukraine, and also Ukraine was amassing their own troops along the border, intensifying the shelling and the massacre in Donbass. It was clear that Russia was pushed into a corner, right? And my theory, and this is not based on direct evidence, this is just based on my understanding of all of the various developments and how this new Cold War has, has taken shape. My theory is that Russia saw that not only would the massacre in Donbass worsen because of increased aid, because of all of this, um, because all of these responses to their preparations Right, because there were preparations being made that the they understood that the United States and NATO countries in Europe were willing to commit economic suicide. They were willing to do anything possible, right, through these sanctions, which are, in somewhat, economic suicide for the United States and the West. They, they're not sustainable in the sense that neither the U.S. or Europe are in an economic position. To support each other. The U.S. simply wants Europe to be decoupled from Russia. They do not care about Europe's economic health. They would probably actually rather the Europe become more dependent on the United States and uh, take part in full austerity rather than the partial austerity that has uh, been underway there. Right? Uh, they want Europe to be more like the United States because that is much more profitable. But that is not necessarily sustainable because the United States' is the model of rapacious and unrepentant and unrestrained austerity and capitalism leads to faster and harder economic crises, which one is on the way should this economic war continue. So, essentially my opinion about why this started is that because of all these developments in the new cold war the nato encirclement the u.s's role in ukraine in the coup and the fortifying and strengthening of neo-nazi forces of far-right forces in ukraine's security apparatus all of these developments point to russia making the calculation at this moment that the only way that this is going to be negotiated The only way that there is going to be any resolution that includes all players is if Russia takes an offensive posture, really calling the bluff of the U.S. and NATO. We can agree or disagree on whether that was the correct action. I think history has not yet allowed us that privilege of knowing whether this was the correct or incorrect move. Because the risk of all of this is that the United States tries and attempts at the Brzezinski model during the Mujahideen proxy war that the United States funded and backed against the Soviet Union in the late 7, 1979 to all the way through the 80s in order to starve the Soviet Union and give it, as Brzezinski said, it's a big news, said to give the Soviet Union its own Vietnam. So that's the risk here uh, because the United States and NATO have made very clear that they are not going to intervene directly. But because all NATO countries, the United States are so reliant on the military at this point, and the military industrial complex is really thirsty for this. And they are, the stocks, all of that, right, are very positive. So they are happy. The best case scenario for the United States and NATO is to not get involved in a World War III scenario, but also have the opportunity, a long standing opportunity, right a lengthy opportunity to weaken Russia. So that's the risk. So we'll see how developments play out. We'll see how this goes. We know that there have been civilian casualties. We know that... Also, that although Russia, of course, is waging the offensive, so does share culpability in civilian casualties, we have to understand in places like Mariupol, right, these eastern Ukraine strongholds, for example, we know that these far-right paramilitary groups that are embedded in Ukraine security forces are actually creating civilian crises and do ascribe by the human shield model. They actually see their own death and the deaths of others as being part of this glorious mission to take down Russia. So we have to also understand that Ukraine – I mean Ukraine's military, but Ukraine's – the pillar military groups that are embedded in them have a huge hand in the civilian casualties that are occurring in this war. It is not a one-sided war. It is not just Russia This, as the media portrays them being this barbarous country that's just slaughtering people wholesale and we have developments occurring tomorrow there will be peace talks we'll see how those go and russia vladimir putin and the foreign ministry are saying that the destruction of ukraine's military infrastructure is imminent the full and entire destruction of its military apparatus is imminent so we'll see how it goes because that according to Russia, has been the mission all along. It's, it's a military operation to completely obliterate Ukraine's security forces. And so it looks like that is that objective is close to being met. In any event, this is a big flashpoint in the new Cold War. And so as Russia... Attempts to meet its own objectives, we see the United States and NATO do whatever they can to intensify every aspect of this, to shun Russia and repress Russia in the realm of international relations, to try to starve the economy, to militarize the region, to militarize Ukraine. And to wage this unrelenting propaganda war that now is endangering, just like the anti-China campaign in the media has endangered the lives of Asian Americans and people of East Asian descent all across the U.S. and the European world. So, too, now has this anti-Russia Russophobia being spread by the media, being spread by the political establishment, is now endangering Russians living abroad. And this is the consequence of of the new Cold War, because the new Cold War is inherently racist. The new Cold War is a backlash to rising powers. And one of the aspects of this backlash is to dehumanize these rising powers, attempt to place these rising powers in the realm of all of the countries beforehand that have tried to wage weaker countries, countries that did not have... Opportunities to be global powers, but to try to foist China and Russia into this status as uh, savage, quote unquote, right? It extends all the way back to the US's original sin in the West's original sin in colonialism, right? To paint these countries as quote unquote savage, to paint them as sneaky, to paint them as all of the various tropes that uh, those in the Asian world have been dealing with for centuries, to essentially dehumanize China, Russia, the people, and the government together. And this is a point I'll always emphasize, that the United States and whatever they say, whatever the ruling class, whatever these cold warriors say, they are not merely just targeting governments. They want to see the Russian people and the Chinese people through attacks on their systems, through the weakening of their political economies and forms of organization, they want to see the people also suffer. Because if the people suffer, then not only is there more of a likelihood that the social orders, that the Russian government and the Chinese government will be weakened, but that there's also more opportunities to take advantage of Those who are suffering because that's what the United States and leading this new Cold War wants. They want more. They want more of a market to exploit. They want Russia and China to become Western style, quote unquote, democracies that are really just satellites of the U.S., NATO, European imperialist world order. And before I close, right, just to conclude this introductory episode, it's a fantasy in a lot of ways. And the United States and its allies understand this because they understand that there is no prospect of an open conflict that could end well between the U.S. and China or the U.S. and Russia or or both. Military strategists understand understand this very well. When Vladimir uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, this so-called hero who's really just a traitor and a puppet of the United States and Europe, when he begged, what was this, yesterday, I believe, for a no-fly zone over Ukraine, the U.S. and its NATO allies told him, uh, go fuck yourself. (laughs) You are absolutely brain dead to think that we're going to risk bombing Russian forces sparking a World War III for you and your vassal state country. That's how the United States views all the countries that it's trying to mobilize in this new Cold War, views them as, as nothing more, nothing better than vassal states to achieve its objectives because the United States doesn't want to fight an open war. There are some who do, uh, but the, the vast majority of the establishment wants to see the objectives of the new Cold War met before any kind of scenario like that occurs. Even still, though, the danger that the new Cold War presents to humanity is vast because I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. It's not that the United States has its finger on the nuclear button saying, "Okay, we're just waiting for Russia and China to make the wrong move. Well, we're just waiting for the opportune moment to use nuclear weapons. I don't believe that that's the case. But, right, if I'm a socialist, I'm a communist, if you understand dialectics and dialectical materialism and how history objectively develops based upon the system or systems at play, we understand that all of these developments in the new Cold War objectively point to nuclear confrontation. Because militarization, endless militarization, endless deployment of nuclear weapons and first strike nuclear capacity to these countries like Poland, like Guam, like Japan, right? To continue to militarize and to continue to propagandize and continue to wage economic warfare, to continue to create this atmosphere only can lead to a, a potential, whether it's an accident or whether it's an intentional move based on misguided strategy can only lead to a nuclear scenario so that's why the bulletin of atomic scientists talk about this you know how 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 close are we to that to this doomsday scenario although i know that they've lost a lot of credibility of late because of covid and other things but in any event you know that that's what this inevitably can and may lead to so we have to take it very seriously And there are many aspects to this, but I don't want to go on and on and on because this is not meant to be an incredibly long podcast. I wanted to keep it to 45 minutes, but this one will probably go an hour. And we got plenty of listeners here. So let me see if I can, you know, if if anybody wants to speak or have a question that you want addressed, this is, I think, that moment for that to occur. I'd like to stop now after that brief introduction and have some conversation with you all um, about what I've talked about, what I didn't talk about, whatever. So the floor is open, I believe, and I can let you in once you signal that you'd like to speak. So, I don't see anyone yet signaling. Um, Let's see. Okay. Well, you know, just signal whenever. I'll probably let this go until 1230 p.m. Eastern Time. And so, I mean, my question, you know, uh, I want to know what your thoughts are about the Ukraine-Russia scenario. If you have any opinions, analysis, things I did not hit on where it relates to this new Cold War? I mean, just watching people that I have respected over the years, even, just regurgitate right anti-russia propaganda just regurgitate the mainstream narrative that you know russia is the sole aggressor and that it doesn't matter about context and going into all of these pontifications and explanations that you could find in the u.s department of state etc I mean, it's it's very disappointing. It's a very harrowing moment, I think, for a lot of us. That's how I felt, at least in this moment, that it's a moment of crises that tell us who we can trust and who we know just aren't ready to stand with us and aren't ready to stand for peace, right, in a, on a real material basis, are not willing to, Put aside. You don't have to suppress right emotions because this is an emotional moment. No one's asking anyone to say, "Okay, there's a war going on, so just don't feel emotional about it." Don't tap into whatever morals you believe you have. I I don't think that that's what anyone should be saying. But then there's also the fact that emotions and morals do not drive politics. Actually, interests drive politics. Politics drive politics. Conflict drives politics in a lot of ways, right? It's not solely about emotion. Actually, emotion is secondary, if not far below that, in how developments actually occur, especially in the realm of imperialism and its relationship to the world and this new Cold War and its relationship to the world. So when I hear just so many people come out with the stand with Ukraine and Russia has no reason to do this or Russia doesn't matter what reason it had to do this. This is the worst conflict since the Second World War that Putin is Hitler, that even the... Problems that I have with the narrative around Putin and Russia center on even just the left's strange obsession with contradictions that I think are very meager and marginal in the sense of their importance in this very moment. For example, there are people who believe that Vladimir Putin is... And I don't necessarily disagree with this. You know, a Russian nationalist and he has these—he this nostalgia for the old Russian Empire pre-Soviet Union. I don't necessarily disagree that some of his ideology does contain elements of that. And so I am totally aware that Putin is not a socialist. He is not a communist. He is not seeking a revival of the Soviet Union as the Soviet Union existed as a socialist power country. We heard his remarks about Lenin. We heard how he thought about the USSR's policy around Ukraine, which, to be honest, was a positive policy to give various republics with cultural differences and national differences autonomy, but also have them remain a part of the Soviet Union as a whole. I mean, that had a lot of benefits to it that we're seeing proven in the fact that now that the Soviet Union has fallen, most of these really uh, countries that aren't countries—I mean, they have national characteristics of a, of a nation—but that doesn't necessarily make them independent countries. Right now, they're they're acting independently only as statelets created to essentially be targets of austerity and militarization. They're 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 satellites of NATO at this point. And there's satellites of imperialism, a lot of the Soviet – essentially most of the Soviet republics. And maybe I can exclude Belarus from that because Belarus has taken an independent political posture. It is the country that has maintained much of – not all of, but much of the Soviet Union's economic base, which is why even Lee Camp, who unfortunately lost his job out of this new Cold War – Hysteria and the repression of Russian media, lost his job, as did many through the closure of and the cancellation of RT America, he had a great segment on Belarus and how Belarus's extreme poverty has essentially been zero for a while. It's close to zero, and that's because Belarus does pour in a lot of state investment into the welfare of the people. So, you know, if we compare that to one of the other Soviet republics, you know, Bosnia or, uh, well, Bosnia was a former Yugoslavia, but we could look at, you know, any one of the NATO satellites, even Ukraine, which still has a per capita income below 1990 when it was a Soviet republic, uh, we can see how devastating the fall of the Soviet Union has been. But I don't see any hands up. I don't know if I have to do something. Maybe I am the one. No, it says all participants can call in. So, yeah, I certainly, um, I'm certainly willing to, uh, I don't know if I'm in, am I in the room anymore? Okay. So yeah, if anyone wants to speak. Oh I have callers. <laughs> I am okay, I'm gonna take the calls now. Sorry, I'm like way I don't know what's going on. This is my first time. Sorry guys. Alright, so so Danny, I'm going to uh make you Okay, you're a caller now. So you should be able to speak if you unmute. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, Danny. I'm still getting to learn this, so thanks for your patience. Thanks for everyone who I see you all in the queue. So, anyway, well,
1: yeah, I just uh, thank you, man. I love your work. I I listen to you all the time. Thank um, you. So yeah, I was. Uh, I don't know if you read the uh, Intercept article that's been going around. It's basically like talking about tankies and something or other about um, like essentially if you don't condemn putin now you you're not of the left if you don't condemn mm-hmm. him in the strongest terms and and i think you kind of encapsulate this correctly but i just wonder you know what do you make of this kind of attack that aligns people like us that have a more nuanced version of mm-hmm. what's going on with these liberals that want to just you know pretend there's no there's no how can i say like biased views, even at the highest level of the UN or whatnot. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. I'll I'll answer that and then get to the uh, the next caller. I muted myself. Uh, So yeah, that is a really good question. I did not read the article, but I just looked it up and I see what, (laughs) don't be a tanky. Wow. Uh, That is that, I mean that's just so indicative of what what we're dealing with here. So it's just so interesting to me that people like this in the intercept I I haven't been following the intercept. I have not liked the intercept for quite a long time. Personally, I wasn't really a reader of the intercept when people respected it because I was not happy with the way that Snowden's leaks were treated. If this was Snowden's choice, fine. But the fact that they only released 5% out of all of that and then started leaking things late and all of that, I, I just found it to be opportunistic from the start and also to never have a good position on the critical questions like Syria and Russia from the very beginning when we really needed it during the height of the U.S backed war on Syria 2011-12-13-14-15 you know into the period where Syria was making advances we needed a, a independent media to take a real stance and they took the wrong one from the beginning so <clears throat> I'm not surprised by this because it's only gone worse and worse and worse at the Intercept and a lot of these so called progressive media outlets I mean this is so disgusting in a lot of ways because I do feel like people who don't understand anything about Ukraine, Russia, politics with the relationship, people, the people completely exploit pe- the people of Ukraine for their honestly anti-Russian, anti-communist agenda. It's the new Cold War agenda. They exploit them. They exploit their suffering, right? Right. And they completely ignore the fact that this war didn't start, whatever, two weeks ago, February, late February, it did not start then. Literally, there have been more than 10,000, 14,000 people in eastern Ukraine that have died because Ukraine has been waging a civil war <laughs> against its own people uh, be- at the behest in Donbass, at the behest of the United States, at the behest of the military industrial complex, right? That that has served only to fuel suffering and to cause so much damage, not just to Ukraine but to the Ukraine-Russia relationship because all, a lot of the most of the victims are Russian speakers in Lugansk and Donetsk and in the Donbass overall and Mariupol, right? In these places in eastern Ukraine that have a deep uh, relationship culturally, politically, socially, to Russia. So they were silent when that was happening. They didn't take seriously, even if they covered the coup in 2014, they didn't take seriously its long-term consequences. And their obsession with leftists who do take these long-term consequences seriously and who do look at the roots of the crisis, who do look at the gravity of the problem that is neo-Nazism and far-right paramilitaries in Ukraine and also just around the world because the Azov Battalion literally trains Americans and other Westerners who are willing to come train, trains them in these methods. Those of us who take this problem seriously because, I don't know, we don't want to see these kind of forces take power and we also don't want the United States empowering such forces and NATO empowering such forces to the detriment of all of us. I mean, I think it just goes to show that these people are not just not serious. They're not just deeply unserious, but they are deeply reactionary and they actually ascribe to the new Cold War agenda. They see the fall of Russia. They see the fall of China too, as beneficial to them. They think, they truly think, and this is racism, Plain and simple. They think that Russia and China are worse than the United States in, in all respects, economically, politically, militarily. It's just completely insulting and it just goes to show how chauvinism can really drive and is in command of a lot of the politics that come out of the so-called left and progressive sphere in the Anglo-Saxon imperialist Western world order. So I'm going to get to the rest of the speakers, but that was a great question and comment on such an important problem, how media so-called progressive media has played a role. That that should be an episode. I should, I should talk about that in the future. So thank you so much, Danny. So I'm going to get to Domingo. Let me, make you the next caller. Domingo, you should have the floor if you unmute yourself.
2: Hi. Uh, Thanks for putting this together. Um, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to um, find alternative um, media or outlets uh, that's different from the quote, official corporate narrative that we're hearing right now, Um, given how some information is leaking, particularly how the the treatment of um, African immigrants um, uh, in Ukraine are being treated, some even asked to, well, I should, I say, quote, asked to fight for the Ukrainians. Um, How do you think the Western media uh, can reconcile, you know, these far right Sort of uh, um, um, uh, characteristics of the Ukrainian government, um, as you know, a, as we kind of strip a lot of the—not um, we, but as um, alternate outlets are being stripped—that um, are not touting the, uh, the the narrative. How how do you think this will impact um, you know Western audiences, particularly uh, as we get you know under a uh, economic crunch? Yeah,
0: that's a really good question. Um, thanks Domingo in my opinion there are many ways that this could go in relation to the media and how, how the western mainstream media is going to reconcile what is a contradiction that is becoming more and more apparent I mean even this former general under Donald Trump Douglas McGregor former advisor he is now going on Fox News talking about how Zelensky's a puppet, and how he should just smell the roses, smell the coffee, and engage in reality, and and cease attempting to continue fighting back in what is a war that will inevitably be lost by Ukraine militarily. And as you said, this comes after all these revelations, I mean... You know, you had Richard Engel of at, at NBC just walking into an Azov battalion training ground, giving children and grandmas guns and training them how to shoot them and how to use them, right? The suicidal far right Nazi like exercise happening right in right on the mainstream media for all to see. And then you had the National Guard of Ukraine, right, publishing the Azov Battalion greasing bullets with pig lard to shoot at Chen Chen Muslim soldiers who are loyal to Russia, right? I mean, this this is on top of the way that migrants, the way that residents from African countries, India, etc., living in Ukraine, the way that they're being treated, the, the hostilities, the racism, the aggression, the... Uh, you know just the out and out racism that that is all challenging this narrative that right that ukraine is europe and ukraine is civilized and ukraine is white i mean i mean in terms of the forces that the us is supporting that that is certainly true right that that's certainly the political alignment but the attempt to create this idea that russia is evil and ukraine is pure good right that is becoming less and less of a possibility of something that can sustain itself in reality for the long term, because eventually, as however this goes, right, history will not look at this as simply one, a one-sided conflict. And so how that's reconciled, the only way I can see that being reconciled is what's happening right now is the closure of political space for alternative voices like myself who I've contributed to so-called state affiliate media, write op-eds for CGTN. Sometimes I interview with them. I, uh, the Chinese media. I've been on RT a bunch of times. I know the people at the office over at RT America here in New York city. It's, it's really tragic. You know, I know Lee, um, I feel bad for a lot of the folks that have lost their jobs. Those at soapbox. I know these folks, they're, they're good people. And, that is going to be a continuing consequence of this—the closure of that space. It, it started with press TV and RT, and it's it's really expanded to all of the international media that gives an alternative viewpoint. And with Russia Gate, we we've been seeing the suppression of just any voice, even if you're independent from those institutions being suppressed, right, having a hard time with the algorithm and being able to generate an audience. And so I think all of that will continue and intensify. And the hope will be, I don't think it will be 100% successful. I do think that there will be breaks and fissures and opportunities for us. But the hope will be that There is only one dominant narrative, and that is Russia was evil. Russia pummeled Ukraine, and it slaughtered people, and that's that. Now we need to intensify this new Cold War. However, this should shake up. And so there really is – I think one of the interesting things about this moment is that there really isn't much room to reconcile anymore because the contradictions are becoming so heightened and sharp. And because the U.S. and NATO are trying to flip a narrative that they've been using for a long time since the Cold War, since arguably 1917, this whole, you know, the Soviet Empire, the Russian Empire, Chinese Empire, all of these so-called empires, these imperialists, colonialists, they're the ones, right? That are causing the aggression and that are at the root of the problem. The, pro- the problem now is that the U.S. is such a militarized superpower. It is the imperialist hegemon that even if everything they said about these other countries were true, the United States has such a record of war crimes that it doesn't have any legitimacy worldwide to make these statements stick. And so that's why you have in Iraq, for example, you have a stand with Russia on the streets of central Baghdad. So you have the PSUV in Venezuela at their Congress chanting uh, Russia, you know, our friend, we're with you, right? So you have a significant number of countries that understand what it's like to be on the side, on the receiving end of u.s aggression either stand with Russia or understand that piling on to the support of condemnation only creates further problems for Russia and themselves right so I think globally this won't have this doesn't already doesn't have legitimacy it's just what happens here in the source of the problem in the source of u.s NATO aggression what happens in these, context and I do see the possibility for this narrative to continue to crumble as things play out and so I think that would accelerate mightily if Russia with China included maybe but or if Russia and Ukraine just work out their differences I think if that were to happen somehow, some way if there was some kind of stalemate and then agreement a peace agreement i'm not saying that's even out of the realm of the possibility i do think that the u.s nato and even large forces of the ukraine's of ukraine's security apparatus may object to it but if the objective situation forces the hand and a peace agreement that would be the opportunity where a lot i think a lot of the realities of this war will become more and more publicized, right? That these instances of fissures from the Azov battalions, Twitter, uh, comment, uh, post to how racist Ukraine security forces are treating Africans and and those of Indian Asian descent in their own country. I think that will become more prominent. These instances will become a thread. That pe- that more and more people will be able to understand as as part of a more complex picture of what's going on here. So thanks so much, Domingo. I'm going to get to the next person so we can continue these calls. So you are now made the next caller. Uh, va- vaccine, <laughs> vaccine, uh, vaccine. Uh, you can unmute
3: yourself. Yo, yo uh, i'm pretty sure you heard uh, from me before yes. uh space. um uh i just i follow a, a group of like um independent news sources uh one of them is the military and he just released news out there that that um Russian forces have actually um uh, acquired a, a series of documents which details um a group of biolabs in Ukraine that are U.S. funded and they were um, these biolabs are involved in creation of uh, biological warfare material and I, re- I read up a little bit more about this and it, I, there are some there are some facts which do support this but in, but in a sense it does feel that it's a little too convenient. Especially at, at this, uh, this time and these operations, but I was wondering, with you in your opinion, is this a possibility, or you know, has has U.S. slash NATO done this before, and you know, so on and so forth?
0: Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for the comment. Thanks so much for supporting. I know you've participated in spaces of mine outside of here, so thanks so much for that. Yeah. So. That's, I'm looking this up now in ASB News. You know, I had seen some emails that I was receiving from others who said that this is, this may be the case or this may not have much evidence to it. So I can't really comment too much on this particular instance, but I did write an article in Substack about the US's history here. I would not be surprised if this were the case. I wouldn't be surprised if this were the case in Other places too, because, as you all may know, uh, Fort Detrick, for example, in Maryland, that facility, which was part of this larger program during the uh, end of the Second World War, that a larger biological weapons program, which was adopted with help with the help of Japan after the subduing of Japan, the U.S. adopted a lot of the biological and chemical warfare that Japan used on its in its colonial missions and its wars. So Fort Dietrich remains open. And even though the U S has renounced biological weapons that we don't use them anymore, it has kept open a lab that has a long history of testing these and also in, 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 give, in testing these weapons and these weapons like anthrax, like plague, like all of this have been deployed in the country, in the United States even, and around the world. Um, and so I wrote an article about the U.S.'s long history in my Substack, Chronicles of High Fond, on about five instances where this was the case, and you know uh, they're numerous. I mean, even in recent conflicts, like Iraq, for example, right? The siege of Fallujah, the United States used chemical biological weapons there. I mean, white phosphorus and depleted uranium have such immense impact on people's well-being and their health, right? The cancer rates in Iraq are now, in Fallujah in particular, are now the highest in the world. White phosphorus literally burns you to death if you're exposed to too much and it creates permanent damage and can also create long-term issues, so the United States has a long history of this. Agent Orange, which is used not just in Vietnam, but in countries all around the world. But Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, all affected by the scourge of Agent Orange, including thousands of U.S. veterans. Right. So, you know, I recount this in the article about how the United States, despite its renunciation of biological weapons, supposedly destroying them and not using them. Actually, they've used them, and they continue to use them, and they continue to keep labs like Fort Detrick open, and so if this is the case in Ukraine, I can't verify it because I have not done as much research as uh, the caller, but I will say that I would not be surprised about this, and I would not be surprised if the United States would be shuffling the Pentagon. I think the report says that the Pentagon has requested that they destroy them. I wouldn't be surprised if they were shuffling too have them destroy them because this that would be an incredible hit to this PR situation, an unnecessary hit to the public relations situation for the United States in its attempt to use Ukraine as a chip in this new cold war against Russia. It's something that's totally unnecessary right now because there's no biological weapon in the world that's going to help Ukraine make any gains against Russia. The United States knows that Ukraine is not militarily equipped to compete with Russia. It doesn't matter if Ukraine had a hydrogen bomb ready to use. No, Russia's a nuclear power with a very strong military. And it's a foregone conclusion that without a no-fly zone or direct help from the U.S. and NATO, that uh, it's only a matter of time before Ukraine's military is, is brought to the point of surrender. And so, that's a very interesting development And I will be really interested In seeing how that plays out and, and whether that Receives the attention it deserves So so thank you for that And now last but not least It seems in the queue we got Steve uh, I'm going to Invite, make you the next caller And then you can unmute yourself So Steve, last caller How are you doing?
4: Hey, how's it going Danny? Alright yeah, it's my first time calling into one of these things. It's my first time on <laughs> call, <Colin>, so great. <laughs> oh really? Oh awesome! Perfect. Um, yeah, I don't. I just had. I don't know if I really had any straight questions to ask or just comments to make, really. But uh, I was watching. Um, I mean, I hate saying I, I was watching Vice yesterday, <laughs> but I was watching some uh, Vice documentary yesterday. It was like one of those little short docs, uh, but it was related to Ukraine, and it was back in 2015. One episode covered that guy from Texas who went over to Ukraine to fight yeah. uh, for for Donbas and then the one following that they covered the American troops mm-hmm. that were sent into Ukraine at the same time to train Ukrainian military national guard, and it was I think it was something like uh, what are U.S. troops doing in Ukraine? So it just it seeing this stuff like it's all well-documented that we've been in ukraine that we've been you know doing stuff to arm them whether it's to to arm them or supply them with uh intelligence and training and people are still so like convinced that this is like a russian aggression that you know no one did anything to provoke this this came out of nowhere putin just woke up and according to south park putin woke up and he realized he's so old now that he has to start uh another cold war like it's just insane how this is like this idea is not just permeating news now but now also cartoon media on like comedy central yeah (laughs) Yeah. um and, and that and in the blink of an eye too i mean south park is known for you know releasing you know new episodes every week and it's you know and timely in a timely fashion because they create them as they go but this was just wow (laughs) like, a... <laughs> and my friend called me yesterday. To tell me about it because he's kind of apolitical, and I was giving him, you know, rundown, like letting him ask questions, like what do you, what do you think's going on, kind of thing, and then telling him, you know, the the rest of the world's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was, and he's just so, people like that are just so much more receptive, I've found, than you know other people who are very into politics, like people who I was, you know. Once considered, you know, friends six years ago when I was really into Bernie who have, you know, just gotten stuck on that mm-hmm. for the past six years and are now literally cheering mm-hmm. on NATO. It's mm-hmm. just it's 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 why, and calling for more war and not blinking as Biden calls for more military funding and police funding, not really realizing that NATO is literally the world cops as they've been, you know, talking about it, it, the cognitive dissonance is just so unreal. How do you go from all of this radical? you know, anti-authority talk about, not even just anti-authority, but anti-police, you know, like they, people work not really deep into the anti-police work, you know, like policing is inherently bad. It doesn't matter if you're a good person, you know, it's in, in a whole, the U.S. policing system, and they don't they don't take that and apply it to like the global arena. They don't take that and apply that to NATO, to, you know, to U.S. military. They, they, they just don't. They just think, I guess in their head, that they can see that U.S. policing in U.S. is inherently bad, but outside of the U.S., it's inherently good is this the default assumption and just it, another thing that just blows my mind. And I guess I just wanted to end on, cause I know I'm the last caller and I want to drag everything on, but I just saw about like two, three hours ago, Samuel Romani on Twitter uh, had some breaking news. Zelensky. Op- I'm just going to quote it. Zelensky openly urges Russians to stand up to Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. Zelensky switched to Russian in a TV address with this message, quote, citizens of Russia, for you this is a struggle not only for peace in Ukraine this is a fight for your country if you keep silent now only your poverty will speak for you later and only repression will answer unquote and i'm just wondering okay <laughs> what would the west response be if this was you know if this was putin saying this to the donbas region yeah. you know for the past 8 years like and, and this is what they think is the case for the past eight years that that Putin's the one leading you know the Duba, the Duba separatists and everything and he's the one responsible for them not wanting to be with uh, the Ukrainian government anymore. And here's Zelensky literally doing what they've all been accusing Putin of doing. And
0: yeah, the hypocrisy is incredible. That. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for the comments, Steve, and uh, appreciate it. It's a really good highlight that you posted. Maybe maybe I'll make you the highlight for this week. Um, but yeah, so thanks so much, everyone. I'm gonna make just some closing comments, and then uh, while while I'm doing that, though, you know, make sure you follow me here. Make sure you subscribe to the show. I will be doing this weekly, barring any issues that go on, because you know, I've, there's there's a lot of things I'm juggling. So you can find all my work at Patreon. The link in the at the top there you can also find me on substack chronicles of hyphen dot com. find me about gender report weekly you can find me at the left lens on youtube where i do I try to do weekly streams at least and then I, I i you know pretty regular uploads so you can follow me in all those places at twitter of course at spirit of ho spirit of ho if you already don't know but yeah, I just wanna close right with that that comment from Steve is very important because it made me think about Marion Williamson and how she called for now she didn't call for it, but she supported the US sending more weapons to Ukraine, to Ukraine's military. And you know, this is someone who's in a milieu that, yeah, they do oppose police brutality in the United States and the militarization of the police. I don't think we could ask anyone in Mary Williamson's camp, or even the Bernie Sanders camp, right? We couldn't ask them, hey, do you support the U.S. militarizing its police forces, given all that we know over the last, especially all that's happened since 2014. I'm sure we'd get a resounding no. But when it comes to arming Ukraine to the teeth to fight Russia, because it's fighting Russia, supposedly, then that means it's okay. And that is really big message of the new Cold War is that there is an adversary that can make all of the things that we generally oppose as progressives suddenly okay. It is a real effective tool and a weapon of war. Because the only way that you can justify it is by seeing Russia in a particular kind of manner. Now, of course, an offensive like Russia's waging serves as a sort of catalyst, right? So no matter what Russia w- did, right, it, the propaganda war would have a similar message against Russia. But because Russia saw it in its strategic interest to escalate and to say, well, we need to, we need to do this military operation now, or risk xyz right risk further conflict risk further loss of life on the border in donbass you know whatever the calculations were and there were probably many and and the russian russian foreign ministry is pretty pretty explicit in all of the various ways that nato helped generate this kind of response but All of that can be ignored when Russia is viewed in a certain kind of way. China is viewed in a certain kind of way as super aggressors, right? Super imperialists as the monsters of humanity and all of the support for the U.S. and NATO arming Ukraine even further, despite it literally taking part in a massacre within its own country, And the fact that it's a coup government, no matter how you square it or slice it and say, oh, Zelensky was elected, it's it's BS. It doesn't matter if it's a post-coup government, right? Elections are just an exercise in who will be the next puppet of the U.S. and NATO, right? That the elections are ultimately well below in importance to the fact that post-coup governments almost always, if not 100%, are run and dictated by the military. And why is that? Well, because foreign powers like the United States can control the military like more easily than they can political affairs, right? You saw in Brazil. We saw it in Greece. We see it all across the world, military dictatorships, Chile. Right? The, the CIA overthrow of Allende, over Iran, and the Shah, it's over and over and over again. Right, Dozens and dozens and dozens of these examples exist, but yet Ukraine is unique because the new Cold War racism can paint Ukraine suddenly white. And I always joke about this, and I'll just close on this. Ukraine is suddenly white despite the fact that Ukraine has literally been kept out of NATO despite all of the discussion. All of the hype, all of the – from Biden and Stoltenberg and uh, all of the functionaries of the U.S.-NATO alliance saying, oh, we love Ukraine. We want Ukraine. We want to be partners with Ukraine. And, that, and they always stop just short of, OK, we'll admit Ukraine, right? The same goes for the EU. Oh, yeah, Ukraine is European and it's Europe and uh, no, nah, but we're not going to admit you just yet, right? So we'll pump you with weapons. We'll, we'll – We'll uh we'll support you in certain ways. We'll give you all of these austerity packages and loans and we'll pump you with weapons and you can go pass them to your far right paramilitaries to do all the work for us and we'll just sit over here and watch things from the sidelines. You know that That's how Ukraine is being treated. And so this whole idea that Ukraine is white and it's European, it's like, no, it's a vassal state. It's literally seen as a third-class, third-rate country in the eyes of imperialism, in the eyes of this new Cold War. It's a very poor country, very culturally diverse. Many nations, including Russian-speaking people, many various cultures and peoples live inside of Ukraine, religious groups, all of that. A long history... Of struggle against nazism was a republic of the soviet union it is not viewed it is not viewed objectively as european it's just being exploited in that way to fuel the new cold war racist attitude which helps get people like mary williamson like all of these so-called progressives on board right? Because chauvinism is such a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool of social control. It's a powerful tool of political manipulation. And that is what is happening. And so that was a very good point, right? A very good point about uh, the discrepancy and what people will oppose and support when Russia suddenly gets involved. And that this will be a long-standing theme of this podcast, just understanding how social justice... Politics, progressivism can go right out the window when you start to include conversations about Russia and China. And it's why I dedicate so much of my work to the new Cold War. So thank you so much for coming to the first episode of Cold War Brew. Went kind of long, but I enjoyed it. Generally, we'll try to keep these to an hour or less, 45 minutes. So next time, maybe I'll give a little bit shorter of opening remarks. But yeah, please do spread this around please do subscribe here to the channel. And also you can follow me on the Colin app and you can keep posted about what I'm doing. And of course, support all my other work. You can find that on Patreon. You can find that various places, Substack, Twitter, etc. So thanks so much for coming guys. This was the first episode of cold war brew. Hope to see you next week as more things develop in this conflict with regards to Russia and as we start to move through more specifically some of these aspects of the new Cold War. All right. Peace out.